Jerusalem, and it is reverberating to the ends of the earth through common, ordinary men who are standing and proclaiming the resurrection. And today we, we find the Apostle Paul in Athens, in the Areopagus, before elite intellectuals. And the message doesn't change. It's still Jesus is Lord over all, and it's still a call to repent and follow Him. I'll read verses 30 and 31, uh, and then we will uh, look at the last part of Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22 together. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word. Hear the words of Christ through Paul to us right now. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Oh God, we stand here today knowing who this man is. Having come before your full revelation of who you are in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we, we stand before a man who is Lord, who is sovereign, who is king, who is your son. And, and even in these moments, the, the message is the same. Repent, bow before Him, follow Him, hope in Him for everything, for forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. And the, the, the call is the same before us right now. And I pray all across this room as we think about the, the idols in our lives, as we think about the things that we give the most worth to, God, I pray that we would repent. And we would turn to a man, not an idol, a person, not a thing, a king, not a servant to us, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As I walked through the church, I noticed over on... The side of the building, there was a coffin. And this coffin was encased in glass all around it. So you could see in the coffin. And inside this coffin was a mannequin that was supposed to look like Jesus. And I, I stood there stunned, staring at this thing that I had never seen. I had been raised... Uh, a good Southern Baptist in a small town in Tennessee, and this was shocking to me. But I listened to the missionary in the background explain this coffin, this casket encased in glass. And he was telling us about a festival that was held once a year in the village we were in, in the Andes Mountains. It was called the Festival of Corpus Christi. And it's where the villagers would take out this coffin, inside it, a, a dead Jesus, 
and, and walk him around the village and fireworks would go off and there would be great celebration that would go off in the village around this idol encased in glass. And, and I begin to look around what I call now a temple. It, it really wasn't a church there in the Andes Mountains in the village we were in. And I began to notice, well, there were all kinds of statues of Jesus all around this place. There were pictures of Jesus. And, and I was stunned by this because for months we had been told these people have never heard of Jesus. This is an unreached people group. They don't know Jesus. We even had missionaries who would talk to the, the kids on the street. Julie Laszlo was one of them and walked up to a little girl on the street and said, what do you know about Jesus? And her response was, nada, nothing. And, and we would talk to people who did not understand the concept of the biblical Jesus, although right in the middle of their village was this house of worship where there were pictures of Jesus all around. And we eventually found out that many years ago, the Peruvians, who were ancestors of ancient Incans, and they, they worshipped their own tribal gods, and they worshipped Mother Earth. You live in the Andes Mountains, and you look out, and that's all you see is Earth. This massive thing must be something. And they attribute it to a, as a god. And these ancient Incans worshipped these spirits and they believed they were everywhere. They blessed their crops. They blessed their families. And so in the late 1500s, when the Catholic Church came to this village, instead of understanding a true biblical Jesus, instead of even becoming Catholics, they just took the face of Jesus the face of the saints, and they put them on top of their spirits. And so when they looked at these images, they thought of them as their ancient spirits that they had always worshipped. And they worshipped these idols in the same way. And it was just this hodgepodge of spirituality that had infested this village. And so when we did talk to them about the biblical gospel... The answer was nada, because they didn't understand it. They didn't understand. They had never heard. They had no concept. All they knew was the forces behind these idols that they had given a face to, even the face of Jesus. And when we come to Acts chapter 17, Paul says it's always been the same problem. We look at our world, we look at creation, we look at the way we want things, we look at the way that we need things, and we make the things in front of us gods, and sometimes we even put the face of Jesus on our gods. And we can even make our view of Jesus an idol that we bow before. Paul, in the city of Athens, this city known for great philosophy, the greats lived there and studied there. He looks around and he sees idols and he sees the same problem many of us have here today. We have taken our world, the things we love, the things we want, we have taken our wisdom 
and we have just made them into idols. And some of our idols have the name of Jesus and the face of Jesus attached to them. We see in Acts chapter 17, this chapter begins with our mission team, the mission group, Paul, Silas, Timothy, traveling, leaving Philippi. They leave Luke behind in Philippi and they begin to travel west on our map that we see here. They begin to travel from Philippi. Now remember what happened in Philippi. This was a place where they planted a church, but they were arrested. They were severely beaten. And now they are leaving this place where you have this somewhat thriving church there. And they travel down to a place called Thessalonica. And they begin to preach the gospel there. This would have been a place uh, some 30 miles west from Philippi. Now imagine this mission team having been beaten arrest it, and now they're marching on, walking 33 miles. It would have taken them three days to get to Thessalonica with stripes on their back, having been worn out from being in prison, and yet they're plodding on. They get to Thessalonica, which would have been a strategic port city for the gospel. We even read in Thessalonians that this was a city where the gospel just reverberated throughout the known world from this city. But as they arrive in this city and they begin to preach the gospel in the synagogues as they always did, there were Jews in the city that stirred the city up. And they said, we've heard of these guys. We've heard of these men. They've turned the world upside down. Now, we often use that phrase as change the world for Jesus. That's not what they meant by it. They meant we have heard about these men and they are troublemakers. Everywhere they go, they are flipping things on its head and they are causing disturbances in every city. And so they chased them from Thessalonica and they moved some 50 miles even more westward to a town called Berea. And here in this off the path, city, this off-the-path village, they preach the gospel and something different happens in Berea. The Jews in the city lean in to listen to the message. And the text says they search the scriptures to see if these things were true. And many in this town believe the gospel. They, they trust in Christ. They, 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 they receive the message that Paul is preaching. But... The Jews in Thessalonica begin to hear what's going on in Berea and they show up and they chase Paul himself from Berea and he ends up alone in Athens. He ends up alone in this, this place that was one of the greatest cities ever known. Now, so far, Paul has preached on riversides. He has preached in prominent synagogues. He has preached in jail cells. He has preached in towns and villages, exotic islands. And now he is in one of the greatest cities ever known. 
And he has preached to Jews. He has preached to Gentiles. He has preached to slave women. He has preached to business women. He has preached to prominent leaders. He has preached to rulers. And now he will stand before the great philosophers of the day. This is where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they lived and they studied and they taught in this beautiful city. But Athens was also a city known for idolatry. This would have been a beautiful place, but its beauty represented its gods. All over the culture, the art there represented the idols that the people worshipped. And here Paul stands in this beautiful city and he looks around. Athens would have almost been like Disney World for idolaters. You could walk around and look for whatever God you wanted to worship. You could enter a temple. You could enter a place of worship. And whatever God you wanted, whatever things you needed, this would have been a theme park for idolaters. And Paul looks around and it literally makes him sick at his stomach. The word used in Acts chapter 17 of Paul as he sees the idolatry before him It's not, wow, this is beautiful. It's he gets sick at his stomach. It's that he gets angry. The word is that he literally spazzes out. He can't take it. And I wonder as we look at our world and we see all of the things that everybody just gives themselves to, unhindered devotion to things, I wonder if we look around and ever are stunned by it. Wow, we live in a theme park for idolaters. It's all around. We can give ourselves to whatever we want unhindered. Does it ever shake you to the core? It shakes Paul to the core in Acts chapter 17. And so what does he do? He stands up and he begins to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, we see in the marketplace... Now, when you think marketplace, don't think Walmart. Don't think flea market. This place where Paul begins to preach the gospel, it would have been a mixture of Wall Street, the opera, or the Grand Old Opry, whatever whatever your tastes are. It would have been a mixture of those things, the politics of Washington, D.C., Harvard, all rolled into one place. It would be like your smartphone becoming an ancient city. The place where you shop, the place where you listen to music, the place where you engage in conversation, the place where you are involved in social activism, the the, the place where all thoughts are, are, are in one spot. And he begins to preach the gospel And we see that the response is somewhat humorous. These great philosophers of the day begin to hear about this itinerant preacher who's preaching of the resurrection. And their question is, resurrection? We've never heard of a God named Resurrection. Who is he talking about? What is this they call him babbler saying? They call him a seed picker philosopher, meaning he's just picking things out of the air. He's just making things up and he's preaching this weird, they say, strange things. And they say, just for kicks, let's bring this redneck itinerant evangelist before the great philosophers so we can have some fun with him. 
So we can, so, so, so we can study and think and, 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 and try to figure out what exactly he's talking about. Is there any truth to it? And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which would have been a place seated above Athens, raised above the city, and it's where the philosophers had set themselves up as the authority of the day. Do we need to censor this guy or can we let him preach? Can we let him keep on talking about this God resurrection? Now we get to this point point, we think, what's Paul going to do? Paul was a very, very smart man. He was well studied. He could stand before the most intellectual of the day and argue and debate. And so we wonder at this point, is he going to change his message? What is he going to do to relate to the philosophers? It, it, how is he going to do this? Notice verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. Now, that was somewhat of a compliment. But he looks around and he says, you're very superstitious. There, there are philosophies here that, that, that would have just been about the material, what's right before you. That there would have been philosophies that there that present that would have been about just pleasure. And, and Paul sums it up here and says, you know what? You're very superstitious. You are committed to these things. You are religiously committed to your philosophies even in a superstitious way. And then verse 23, he says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with the inscription, The Unknown God. And he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And so he says, You're very religious, you're very superstitious, and by the way, it's a mistake to think the unbelievers around you aren't spiritual. There aren't religious. They have given themselves spiritually over to something. And Paul sees that right before his eyes. And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you what's going on. You are so superstitious, you have an idol to the unknown God. And this would have been the just-in-case God. This was such an idolatrous city, they had a stone, they had an idol called the unknown God, just in case we missed one. And so Paul says, I'm going to tell you the God you missed. I'm going to tell you the God you really don't know about. I'm going to fill in this blank for you. In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Here is the starting point with every human being. You are created by God. All of this superstition before him. And he says, let's get to the heart of the matter. You are a created being. The God I'm talking about made everything and everything in it. The world being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He immediately addresses the idolatry in this way. He says, you are idolaters, but you are created. There is a God who created all things. Therefore, you can't create him. 
Look around your city. You're trying to create God. You can't do it. There is a God that created everything. He also refers to God here as Lord over heaven and earth. He is Lord over creation. You can't create Him and you can't control Him. You look around your city, you see these gods that you control, you make up the rules, you imagine what they're like. You can't do that. There is a God that stands outside of creation who is Lord. He makes the rules. And the God I'm talking about, Paul says here, is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Everything needs Him. You can't create Him. You can't carve Him. You can't paint Him. You can't put Him on a shelf. You can't make a temple for Him to live in. He stands outside of everything that He created. He rules over it, and He needs nothing He created. You see, Paul... Paul stands before the most intellectual of the day and he assumes something. You can't deny God. All you can really do is replace Him. And that is the heart of all sin. It is to replace. It is to reinvent. It is to reimagine God. That's what our hearts do. We look at creation and we remake God. We, we reinvent God in light of what we see, in light of what we hold, in light of what we touch. It's what John Calvin uh, once said. Our hearts are idle factories. Everything that we see, we touch, we want, we think of, we make into God's. And yet you can't deny God your creator. He is the one who made everything. And you can't take what he created and make it into a God. This is what Paul would talk about in Romans chapter 1 when he's, he, he's beginning to, to get into the doctrine of sin. And he says it begins when you look at creation and you see trees and you see the world. And, and when you begin to think, what should I worship? Because you're created to worship. You go and you worship trees. You go and you worship things. Because that's how twisted your heart is to worship the creature rather than the creator. Paul is hammering here at the heart of idolatry. I idolatry that replaces the creator with creation. That's who we are by nature. We attribute devotion and great value to created things. We make the temporary ultimate. Paul in Romans chapter 1 would describe us this way. Imagine you walk into your home. You wouldn't walk in. You would get up on Christmas morning. Hopefully you spent the night there. Um, <laughs> but you come into the living room and you offer these great presents to your kids. Let's say that you give them an iPhone. I've been begging you for an iPhone all year. And here it is. And they hold up the iPhone and say, I worship you and I adore you. And they get down on their knees in front of the iPhone and say, you are my hopes. You are my dreams. You would say, no, I spent $600 for that thing. Give it back. And yet that's the same thing we are all doing before God. The creation that he has given us to enjoy, 
the world that he has handed to us, even the blessings of God, we bow before them and we remake them into God. We fashion them into images of God that we want. We replace the creator with creation, which means we replace the, the Lord of heaven and earth with ourselves. We become the authority. And by the way, when we think about someone who denies God, Think about the reasons they do that. They deny the existence of God. And maybe they say in the Bible, the supernatural is impossible. Miracles are impossible. The resurrection, that's a silly story. What are they doing? They are replacing themselves with God. I make the rules. Your, your arguments don't prove that God doesn't exist. You just don't like the God that, does, that exists. And why do they do that? They want to be Lord. They don't want to be accountable. I find this all the time with people uh, who are in sin and you begin to counsel them. The, the, the man who's caught in adultery and he's leaving his wife and you pull out the Bible and you begin to talk about adultery being sin. One of the first things they will say, well, you know, man wrote that book. How, how do we know that that's what God meant by that verse? How do we... How do we really know that's true? And what are they doing? They are pushing the Lord of heaven and earth away and his word away. Why? So they can do what they want. And they have remade a God in their image. And it's usually sitting in the chair in front of me because they want to make the rules. We replace self-sufficient creator with insufficient things. Paul's getting at the heart here. Idols that we have to create, idols that we have to wash, idols that we have to paint and clean and move around. We make those things ultimate. And he said, he continues in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He gets in here to the, the kingly authority of God. You see, the Athenians, many of them believe that they just, they just came from the ground as these special people on earth. And, and Paul's saying, no, someone created you. A creator God put you here, and he's your king. And he's not a tribal deity for one group. He made every nation, every man that exists on the face of the earth, and all territory is his territory. He is the sovereign king of the race of all men, from Adam to Noah and on and on. There is one God who rules over all men. And why? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. And being God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, we have a sovereign creator. Our creator is king over all things. And he gets to a point here where he says, he's not a thing. He's a person. And he uses this term offspring. Now, he's not saying we are all God's children. Sin has severed us from God as our father. 
Sin has severed us from that relationship. But he does use the term offspring here to prove that we are persons who have been created by a person. He even uses this poem of the god Zeus. And he stands up and says, y'all know God's not a thing. He's not a stone. Even some of your best musicians sing songs about God being a person. And, and we are people because God is a person. Things can't create people. Stones don't create persons. A person has created people. And why has he done it? He, he says here that we might reach out to him so that we might know him so that we might, verse 27, fill our way. It literally means to grope to find him. And the point here is God, a person, has created people to know him. Paul says you can't create God in your image. No, God created you in his image. And what that means is he created you as a person to know him personally. He's not a stone. He's not an object. This is why we even see in the Bible the primary image of God is Father. Why is he doing that? Because God wants you to know him personally as a father through his son, Jesus Christ. And those terms are used to, to, to press the point that you are to know him personally. You are to have a relationship with your God. He's not a stone. That's why we think about God being a trinity. God, God in some sense, is a community of people. And they invite us in to have fellowship with that community. He's getting to the point here that your God who created all things, who is sovereign over all things, created you to know him. And you can't know stones and you can't know temples. They're not people. They're not things. And that gets at the heart of some of our own idolatry here today. Some of us here today are chasing after things we can't know. We are chasing after that thing, that phone, that technology, that car, that house, that thing that we've got to have. And we go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And it's never enough. And what are we trying to do? We're worshiping things we can't know. And the call of the gospel is to worship a God who you can know. And that's why we're empty in our religious, superstitious, idolatrous pursuits. Some of us even do that with relationships. We have a creator God who made everything. He is self-sufficient. He can never be drained empty. And he says, know me as this self-sufficient God who, who will never run dry. The fellowship with me will never run dry. And in what we do in his face is we make other relationships, God. We idolize people. Some of us are frustrated with our relationships here today because we idolize them. We are looking for eternal fellowship in our kids who are insufficient. They're not, they're not going to fulfill us eternally. But we pursue that relationship and we do whatever we can to get some sort of fulfillment out. They are insufficient. Some of us here today are, we have idolized our marriage. We've idolized it. 
And we're trying to get some fulfillment out of this person who is a sinner. And they keep letting us down. And they keep sinning. And they don't always do what we want. And our expectations day after day aren't met. And we're frustrated. Why? We have idolized that person. We're trying to get from them what we're supposed to get from God. Some of us are frustrated with our friends today because we've idolized that relationship and they're just as selfish as we are. And we're, 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 we're digging into this well that keeps running dry. Why? We idolize it. We've made it into a God. Some of us idolize ourselves in the relationship. We step in and say, need me, need me, need me, need me, need me. You got to need me. Look to me. And what we're saying is idolize me. And there's idols all around. Things and people. And what Paul is saying here is you can't get this right until you start with God. And you say that relationship is what I need more than anything else. And when that relationship is right, things are right. I can use things, not worship them. When that relationship is right, I can enjoy fellowship with one another no matter what I get in return because I am fulfilled by this eternal fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's the problem with your idolatry. You're looking into things that will not satisfy you while a creator God is staring you in the face and he is all around. But notice he gets to the point here, verse 30. These times of ignorance God overlooked. Now, when we see the term ignorance in Scripture, it's, it actually means foolishness. And it's a biblical term. Fool. You can call people fools in a very encouraging biblical way because it means not to fear God. And you can say you're acting like an idiot to people because they don't fear God. And that's what Paul is saying to these philosophers here. The most elite intellectuals of the day. And sort of a side way, he's saying, you're fools for worshiping these things. But these times of foolishness, God has overlooked. And he has been looking forward to a point in time in history, looking forward to what we know as the cross, headed to a solution, overlooking that ignorance and grace and mercy. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, not just some people. He's not a tribal deity. He's not a fixed idol in your city. All men must turn from their idolatry and turn to God. And notice repentance is a command. We plead with people to, to repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. But as we do that, it is an authoritative command from their creator to turn to their savior. As you plead and pray and, and counsel people to look to Jesus, there is an authoritative command coming from God to, to turn from the idolatrous, sinful ways and notice, turn to a person. Because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Notice, by a man. A man whom he appointed. And how do we know who this man is? And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. There's only one, been one man raised from the dead by God. And who hasn't gone back to the grave. And his name's Jesus. And by raising him from the dead, this one who has died for sins, this 
one who hung under the wrath of God for sins and laid in the ground for three days by raising him from the dead, what God is saying to every man is, here's your judge. He will stand at the end of human history and evaluate and judge every man according to himself according to what he has done for them. God proves through the resurrection that Jesus is king and judge, and he is the man you must turn to. He is literally the person, not an idol, who you must turn to. He reveals to us the person of God in flesh. He's not a thing. He's not wood. He's not stone. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection... Many believed, and there was great revival in Athens. No, and some believe that Paul probably preached for three hours here. And what we have is the summary. And he gets to the end, and some mocked. Now, this stupid seed picker philosopher. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and then there were some men who joined him and believed. It took a while. Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And we see here in verse 33, this is just the, 34, this is just the way the gospel moves through Acts. Many reject. Some people go, ah, okay. And then there are names of people who believe. And the witness has moved from the river in Philippi to the university in Athens. But notice the connection. God raised him from the dead to prove he is king and judge. But men here reject the resurrection to reject the idea that he is king and judge. You want to get off the hook with God? Deny the resurrection. Because resurrected people can't be ignored. They can't. A, a resurrected man, you got to deal with him. But what do they do? They mock. They ignore it. They push it away. And it's the heart. It, it is the heart of idolatry that we see right before him, right before us. This is the reality where the reality of God gets real and personal. Resurrected flesh and blood. you got to deal with that. And what we see here is Paul pushes forward a person. Jesus Christ pushes forward a man. We understand that our idolatry moves from just this cosmic force that's out there that we're sinning against. Just this system of belief that's out there that we reject. No, what these men have done is they have rejected a person. And it's Jesus. Do you understand that your sin is personal? When you sin, it's not an abstract theological concept. It's like when we used to discipline our kids and we would look at them and say, you've sinned, and what would they do? Several times they would go, yes, Daddy, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> Cars did that. Some of you need to know that. She's got you fooled. But what is she do? What, what, is, what are they doing there? They're trying to push away the idea that sin is personal. And it's this abstract thing that we teach. Paul stands before these men and says, this isn't an idol and this isn't an abstract thought. This is a person back from the dead who will judge you forever. And, and so when you think, I make idols out of created things, you're doing that in the place of Jesus, a person. 
You're choosing these things over Jesus the Christ, who is a person. You will look into his eyes one day. As you set yourself up as sovereign king of your world, you are doing that in the place of Jesus, who is a person. As you set yourself up as sufficient, I can do it, I have the power. You are doing that in the place of a person who is Jesus, who has done everything for you. As you look to temporary things for fellowship, you are doing that in the place of Jesus, who offers you eternal fellowship. Jesus has been satisfied with fellowship with the Father and Holy Spirit forever, eternal, infinite fellowship. And He offers you into that, and you say, no, I'm going to worship a thing instead of you, a person. It's a person. Sin and rebellion is a person. Idolatry is against a person. Notice, as we think about this, the, we, I often think about the book of Jeremiah the prophet. Here, as we see Paul before the Areopagus, before Athens, before as we even move in and we move closer to, to Rome, we, we see Paul before the, the idolaters preaching the gospel. And I often think about the prophet Jeremiah. And, and the prophet Jeremiah would describe idolatry to the people of God this way. He would say, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. It, it is a vivid picture of idolatry. And it's exactly what Paul is displaying before, uh, before the Areopagus here. You know what your idolatry is like? It, it's like digging your own wells. It's like honing out your own cisterns. It's like putting water in there that you consider ultimate. And, and, and yet your cisterns have holes and the water's pouring out. And yet you're guzzling it down as if it's going to satisfy. No, you created that well. You created that cistern. It will never satisfy. And that's why Jesus would say here, as we hear about Jeremiah, who talks about this living water, Jesus would stand up later and say, no, I am eternal living water. I am a mountain spring and I am self-sufficient. And when you drink from me, you will never thirst again. And he paints that picture of idolatry before us. You are drinking from the temporary as if it's the eternal, when the eternal mountain spring is here. And how do you honor a mountain spring? You just stick your head in and drink, and you don't have to work for it. That's why Isaiah would say, come, you don't have to have, you don't have, to have money for this mountain spring. You don't have to bring anything for this mountain spring. Turn from your broken cisterns of pond water to a mountain spring. You know what some of you are also doing? You're drinking from this mountain spring and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to go get some pond water and replenish what I just drank out of the mountain spring. And you're bringing your dirty pond water back in. I always think, I worked with my uncle 
in the summers, and he had this nasty old horse trough, and it had scum just growing from the bottom of it. And we would always pass that horse trough on the way in after every day, and I always wanted just to stick my head in that dirty, nasty, scum-infested horse trough and just drink because it looked so good because I was so hot and depleted. And that's what some of you are doing here today. You see horse troughs all around that you're drinking from and you think it's going to satisfy you. No, even the, even the water in the horse trough comes from the mountain spring. And you are dishonoring the one who says he is living water. And you are to turn from this dirty water and just drink. You are to set your buckets down and just drink. You are to turn from your idols and just believe in Jesus. But as we think about idolatry being so personal, it gets even personal, more personal than that. Because there's an idol behind the idols. And you brush their teeth every morning. And this is the heart of your idolatry. Because it's not just our Cordovian friends who make little idols of Jesus and put crowns on him and paint their face, things that they've created that they bow down and worship. We do that to ourselves. The idol most of us worship here today, or all of us to some extent worship, looks a whole lot like our Facebook profile picture. And we are bowing before it. Whatever you want, whatever you need, that's God. And we may put the name and face of Jesus on it. But the reality is, when it comes to knowing Jesus, nada. Let's pray.